crushed it. My dad was here. He's like, give it up, give it up. <laughs> He's a goofball. Um, hey, guys, three things I just want to draw your attention to. Uh, first, as uh, Becky mentioned, it reminded me uh, that as you are now making plans with your families uh, to for Christmas and your friends and uh, all those things, uh, Christmas Day, we're going to get together as a church at 1030 um, it's a Monday. Some of you are like, we don't have church on Monday. We have, we're going to have church on Christmas because um, we had too much fun last year. Last year, Christmas was a Sunday, and we had church, and it was awesome. It was great. Um, kids, you, you're already out of here, so I can't talk to you right now. Bummer. Bring your kids. They get to bring a toy. Uh, there's no sermon that day. The kids just challenge me with their favorite gift, and I have to show them how every gift they got on Christmas points to Jesus. And so it'll be two uh, children's conversations that day. Um, other one, we were talking about Thanksgiving, we're good there. And then I just wanted to uh, express our condolences to the Luter family who lost, uh, Brad lost, y'all lost your mom on Friday? Thursday, so. Um, brokenhearted for you all. And yet I'm glad to be talking about this today. Uh, today, uh, we're going to finish up a sermon series that we've been talking, uh, we've been calling Transformation by Reformation, uh, which is built upon a celebration both of a, an incredible recovery of uh, the truth of Christianity that happened 500 years ago uh, through uh, men and women all over Europe who were uh, wrestling with the scriptures and realizing uh, that uh, the church had made some mistakes theologically and practically uh, that had obscured the truth of the gospel, that had made uh, Christianity uh, into something other than uh, what the scriptures had taught and that they had reclaimed that. They had uh, reformed. The word reform means to uh, give back shape. It, if you can think about a mold, it is to, to remold it back to the way it was supposed to be, the way it was shaped. And so uh, we are learning uh, that all human transformation, all transformation that comes, apart, comes about in my life comes about by being reformed to the image of Christ, that that is in some sense what it means to be saved is to be uh, to have the image of God that was put on me when I was uh, created, put on humanity when it was created, and marred, uh, marred, misshapen, or destroyed uh, when we rebelled against God, to have uh, the image of God reformed in us, to be remade in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And we've talked about these things over and over again over the last few weeks. And today we're going to talk about uh, reforming the way we think about being saved, the way we think about eternal life, the way we think about heaven. And so if you have Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we'll read the first few verses there. We just read John 14, 1 to 6, which is uh, something I read at almost every single funeral. But John chapter 17 is going to give us some light on what we're talking about. This is Jesus' uh, last uh, extended prayer. He's, the night before he dies, he goes and he has uh, what's called his priestly prayer, where Jesus prays for his disciples, he prays for himself, he prays for uh, his disciples' disciples, he prays for you and me. And this is the beginning of that prayer. So John chapter 17, I'll start with the first verse. It says, After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, 
For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now this is eternal life, that you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you give me the ability to make Jesus famous? Something that I cannot do by myself. I don't have uh, the words, the intellect, the imagination to communicate uh, your truth uh, clearly unless you reveal yourself, unless you show us yourself. All we have are words and songs. We need you. We know you're here. We know that you want to speak to us. We know that you are already shaping us to receive the message that you have given to us today. May I speak truthfully and accurately about your word and what it leads us to believe that we might be reformed to the image of Jesus, that we might be remade by your gospel, and that in our reformation, we might be more useful in your hands to remake, to reform, to recapture the whole world, that the heaven, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Maybe more than anything else, the Protestant Reformation, uh, which happened 500 years ago, reshaped the way we think about salvation and death. As human beings um, have stared in the face of death for as long as human beings have existed, there has been this grave need to answer uh, for comfort and for security, for answers about what happens after we die. Where do we go? How do we get there? And for nearly as long, for as long as, that, as long as we can tell, as long as sociologists can tell us, the vast majority of human beings who have ever lived anywhere or at any time have believed that in some way human beings go on existing after they cease breathing, that they go somewhere, somehow. The Greeks called it Hades, the Hindus called it Nirvana, the Romans called it Elysium, the Vikings called it Valhalla. And I recognize, sure, I acknowledge that there is a minuscule percentage of human beings that have re- recently begun to adopt the idea that we go nowhere when we die except into dirt. And we can call that philosophical materialism, but the vast majority believe in some sort of heaven. And so the question is naturally, how then do we get there? And there's been no shortage of speculation because we're fascinated about it. Do you guys remember a little while ago, uh, there was a book, it was called like Seven Minutes in Heaven and it sold a gazillion copies? Because we're fascinated by this idea. Anytime somebody seems to have a a back from the dead experience, we want to know as much as we possibly can um, about that. But God hadn't told us that much um, about it. And so we try to fill in the blanks based on uh, wild speculation from fragments of Scripture. And it gives rise to all kinds of crazy ideas. It gives rise to all kinds of crazy bestsellers. It gives rise to all kinds of of mental projections and and wishful thinking and, and whatnot. 
And in the history of the church, it gave rise to this idea uh, that the Catholic Church came to call purgatory. And purgatory is a third place besides heaven and hell, heaven where God is and the saints go, and hell uh, where God is not and where the wicked go. Purgatory was not historically conceived of as limbo. It's not a place, it's not a testing ground. It's not a place where you, you might go to heaven, you might go to hell. It's not a place where you're still trying to figure it out. It's not a place um, of necessarily uh, second chances. Rather, purgatory was conceived of as a perfecting ground. Uh, you might think of it as the mud room on the backside of heaven. It's for people who can't go straight into heaven, but, they, 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 but they've been forgiven, they just got to be cleaned up a little bit, and so they got to come through the back door to the mudroom in heaven, and they got to get scrubbed by the angels and washed clean. And there were several ideas that led to this capitulation of uh, purgatory, which really uh, wasn't codified in the church, wasn't um, officially uh, adopted in the church until uh, the 13th century, until the 1200s. And some of those things that just kind of led to this idea coming about uh, was first uh, this idea that there are two kinds of consequences that come about because of sin. There's two kinds of punishment that every sin entails, every sin deserves. The first being eternal consequences. That would be hell, that sin deserves death. It it deserves eternal separation from God. The Bible says this in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. That's the eternal consequences. And then the second is not just the spiritual, the eternal consequences, but what the uh, the Catholic Church uh, came to call the temporal consequences. Temporal, T-E-M-P-O-R-A-L. Temporal. And temporal consequences are the consequences of bad decisions. Uh, Those would be things like if you murder somebody, even if God forgives you for that murder, that person doesn't come back to life. That is a consequence. And um, the church, the Catholic Church, over years and years and years, the Roman Church uh, came to believe uh, that, that God forgave the eternal consequences, but that you and I uh, still had to pay the punishment of the, the temporal consequences. And that idea is not wholly false. That idea is, uh, is not wholly uh, wrong. We see this all the time, right? We see this uh, throughout the Scripture. Uh, maybe the one that makes most sense to me is David. Uh, David commits a grave sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then he murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he, he says, you've done something awful and wicked. And David says, you're absolutely right. And David writes this incredible confession in the psalm, Psalm 51. And he, he begs God for forgiveness, and he trusts in God's grace. And God forgives him for that. And this, is, this story is, is told that, that God forgives him for that. But there's consequences, right? The consequences are that the sword does not depart from David's household until the Messiah comes. That David's own son rebels against them, leads a coup against David's throne. Uh, That ultimately, uh, during Solomon's reign, uh, the kingdom will be divided in half and will not be put back together until the Messiah comes. That there were eternal consequences taken away, and then there were still some temporal, um, some, some real-life consequences uh, that, that still came into effect. We might call these consequences, uh, and so the, the church came to say that the eternal consequences are dealt with by the sacrament of penance, that is going to confession, confessing your sin, and having a priest forgive you. But the temporal consequences were dealt with um, by doing penance, or what we might call making amends. And so we talked about the fact, I just told you, uh, that um, God pays the eternal, we were, the Catholic Church taught that God paid those, we had to pay these other ones. 
But what happens if you die before you can make amends? What happens if you die before you can fix the consequences of your sin? Well, that's where the Catholic theology um, built this idea of purgatory. It's an idea of uh, fixing the things you messed up after you, it's too late to fix the things you messed up. It's how do, I, um, how do I suffer the consequences of my mistakes when I'm a sinner on a cross and I turn to Jesus uh, a breath before I die? So they create this idea of uh, purgatory, this place of um, perfection, this place of, um, of paying out the rest of my consequences, of paying my debt to God. The second idea that comes on uh, this is, a, so you, again, you see the perversion of that, uh, that, that expresses uh, what just natural consequences that I have to live with the consequences of my sin, um, even after it's forgiven, that it affects me, that it affects the people around me, that it affects the world I live in. That if we extrapolate that out, we create something that's kind of marred and, and manipulated called purgatory. But the second thing is another good thing, which is this idea that, that very few people die um, perfect. In fact, no one dies perfect. No one dies ready for heaven is the idea. Um, and so God has to get us the rest of the way ready for heaven. That when we die, we're still sinners. We still got bad habits. We still got grudges. We still got, un, um, we still got people we haven't learned to forgive. We still have uh, tastes that are more suited for hell than they are for heaven. And so God puts us in the antechamber. God puts us in the narthex of heaven, the mudroom of heaven, a purgatory where he can finish perfecting us, where he can finish the work that was begun in our lifetime. That was the idea. Uh, that, that we have to be perfect in order to enter into God's presence and none of us die perfect. And so there has to be a, a space between death and heaven where God finishes the job. That was the idea. And that actually comes from a, truth, a, a true thing, which is that God has to make us perfect, that God is, is making us perfect. It's an extension of what Christians uh, have historically and always called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification means that God... Uh, forgives us he justifies us it's just as if we've not sinned and then he sanctifies us he sets us apart and he makes us holy this is um, most clear if you see it in hebrews um, in one of my favorite verses hebrews chapter 10 of verse 19 uh, says this actually i'll uh, verse let's go to verse 14 hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 says for by one sacrifice that's jesus who sacrifice Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Has made perfect. What tense is that? That's past tense. Are being made holy. What tense is that? Present progressive. Meaning it's an action that's going on now and is continuing to go on. And so you and I, Christians, have been made perfect in the eternal sense that we, when God looks at me, He sees Jesus Christ. He does not, uh, he does not see... Um, uh, a sinner that is unforgiven. He sees me uh, holy and, and clean and blameless, and yet he is constantly making me perfect. So he has given me credit for something that's not mine, and now he is conforming me to the image of Jesus. When he looks at me, he sees Jesus, and now he's actually teaching me to, to live more like Jesus. And that process goes on from the moment of uh, conversion all the way to the moment of death, and yet none of us arrive at death perfect. None of us arrive at death um, free of sin, free of that. And so um, God has to us. The Greek word for this is apokstasis. Some of you don't care. That's okay. It's A-P-O-K-S-T-A-T-A-S-I-S. Um, it's a long word. Uh, but it just means perfection. It means being made uh, perfect. And that has to happen. That has to happen. But purgatory was this idea, this space, this, this third space where that would happen somehow after death. 
as if God were confined to time and limits, as if God uh, needed more time to finish his job, as if uh, God uh, couldn't do in an instant what um, that work of perfection. And, and the saints, uh, the saints of old, uh, the saints of uh, the, the, the early church fathers, uh, the, the Orthodox uh, Christians throughout time and space have believed in that progressive nature of being made perfect, but they didn't feel a need to create another space, that God can do that instantaneously at the moment of death. Uh, God perfects us. God brings us um, to what we, win, what we should already be, uh, what we were before we fell, that we're made perfect and we're, cle- and we're cleansed and we're doing all those things. And so, um, when the Reformation came, that we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and to the glory of God as revealed in the scriptures. And when that uh, idea was reclaimed, when we recovered that idea, then uh, purgatory just kind of evaporates because you no longer have to pay anything because Jesus has paid it all. As the old hymn says, he's paid all of my debt. He's paid every bit of it. There's not a nickel left. I don't have a nickel to give if Jesus said, I'll pay, nine, I'll pay uh, $99.95. If it only costs a nickel, I cannot buy it. Like, I, I can't get my own salvation. I got nothing to add to it. And so the idea uh, that somehow my sufferings would add anything to Jesus' sufferings makes zero sense. It makes negative sense. Um, and so that falls apart. So the idea of punishment falls apart. And the idea of being made perfect and God needing more time of that. And um, we already seen in Hebrews that God can do that. God has already imputed righteousness to me. And then in the moment of uh, death, he is making me into what um, he, he finishes the job and makes me perfect and invites me into heaven. And so this idea of purgatory as a third space um, just dissolves. It just falls apart. And so uh, Protestants uh, almost immediately ceased to believe it. It took Luther about 10 years, but um, he eventually uh, renounced this idea. And yet we still have all these crazy ideas in our head about what it means to be saved. You see, in the, in the 1500s, uh, what it meant to be saved was not just that you were forgiven, but that you could somehow like shorten your time in purgatory, your time in this third space where you weren't yet in the full uh, presence of God. And so there came all these practices that you would do for yourself and for the people you love to try to shorten their time in purgatory, to try to minimize that time in purgatory. You'd do penance. You'd uh, go on pilgrimages. You'd go to holy relics. Uh, you would uh, give money to the poor. And you would pay... Um, you know how now you can establish a professorship in your name? Probably, uh, I can't. I don't have that much money. But if you uh, went to a college and you loved it, you could say, we'll pay a professor's salary for the rest of however long the money lasts or a scholarship. You could do that for a priest and that would cut off your time in purgatory. And all that kind of evaporated and yet you and I still think all these crazy thoughts. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Let me see if I can help uh, outline some of our crazy thoughts this way. Because what I think we actually, when we think about what it means to be a Christian, when we think about salvation, when we think about eternal life, we think about heaven, and then we think specifically about the minimum entrance requirements for heaven. We think of Christianity as minimum entrance requirements for God's kingdom. When I was a kid, we went to the Magic Kingdom. We went to Disney World. My dad took us down there. I have no idea why. I guess it sounded like more fun than piling the money up in the backyard and lighting it on fire. Um... But I remember we went down there. I can only remember a few things from this trip. I remember it was a business trip, and so we got to go to Dad with Dad to all the fancy dinners. And I remember at one of those dinners, there were people eating uh, these blood-red, hard-crusted tails of something that they would dip in butter and ooh and ah over. It was the first time I ever had lobster. 
And I can remember uh, that just before we went down there, Dad bought one of those uh, newfangled devices that sat on your shoulder, a video camera. And we're not talking one of the small ones. We're talking one of the giant ones. You guys remember the ones that was like carrying your suitcase around up here after putting cinder blocks in it instead of clothes? And you had to put in a VHS tape. It would like, you couldn't film a whole sermon. You would, you'd have to change tapes throughout the middle of it, especially one of mine. And, uh, and so he's sitting there, and I remember that. And then the, the next thing I remember... I was when we went to the gate, we get up to the ticket gate, and Dad's up there talking to the lady, and the woman says, uh, Sir, how old are your children? And I have two younger sisters, and so he says something like, Five, four, and two. And I remember saying, No, I'm not, I'm six. <laughs> and Dad saying, and the woman saying, Okay, that'll be three adults and two kids, or something like that. And I remember my dad just kind of looking at me, shaking his head. And I don't know when it hit me, but at some point in the next little while, I realized what dad was doing. Dad was fudging so he could get me in at the, the kids' rate, the like lowest. He knew the minimum entrance requirements or the, the maximum age requirement or whatever. The minimum requirement was five. And so he was trying to pass me off as a five-year-old, and my younger sisters is even younger, so that we could get in and have a few extra bucks for turkey legs or those felt Mickey Mouse ears that they used to give out. And, and then I remember we finally got inside of it. We finally got inside of a Disney World. And there, I can remember like standing uh, back against a, a cutout, a crocodile-shaped cutout with marks on it to try to prove that I was big enough to ride the Peter Pan and Captain Hook pirate ship of destruction and death or whatever it was called. And I remember sitting there and trying to like raise myself up on my tiptoes so that I can be tall enough to ride on this this roller coaster or whatever it was and I remember sitting there and and just trying to be really discreet and be tall enough to ride it trying to meet the minimum entrance requirements and I think half of us think I think most of us think about uh, eternal life this same way Because I would be sitting there of trying to, to shorten either the way my dad did and uh, trying to, to, to just hit just enough, just barely enough, just get by enough. Or, then, uh, or me sitting there trying to circumvent the same thing, meeting uh, the minimum entrance requirements to try to get into Disney World. That we think of getting saved, of being a Christian, of becoming a Christian, of being redeemed as satisfying the minimum entrance requirements for heaven. And we approach God like Dad and I approach Disney, downplaying certain characteristics, like our character defects, trying to limit those, trying to minimize them, trying to, to change our score from a, a 6 to a 5, and then exaggerating other things like our height, our character virtues, our moral successes, like me standing on our tiptoes against that alligator. We want in, but we only want in by the skin of our teeth, and so we still operate out of a tryout mentality like we talked about last week. We're still trying uh, to be good enough, just good enough, not too good because then life would get boring and not good and, and not too bad or or else we wouldn't be in. Just good old boys, never meaning no harm. When we think it's up to our actions, our goodness, the Bible calls that our righteousness, and we live with a frantic anxiety of middle school tryouts, trying to endlessly prove ourselves, and we live with, or we live with the arrogant confidence of a returning senior, walking his way through tryouts, just trying to do enough to not get yelled at by coach. You and I will never know peace if you live like this. You will always live with anxiety, spiritual anxiety, because you will constantly wonder if you've met the minimum entrance requirements for heaven, if you've lived a good enough life, if you've been good enough to be saved, or if you've fudged one too many times, 
or if God is somehow smart enough to look at your feet and not at the top of your head when you lean up against that counting board. When you lean against the spiritual alligator at the gates of heaven. With all the anxiety, you cannot learn to trust God because you must deceive God. And you cannot learn to trust others because they might expose you to God. And you cannot let yourself be loved and known and cared for because of anxiety that you haven't met God's standards and that you'll never meet other people's standards if they actually see you as you are. You'll never satisfy the minimum entrance requirements for a relationship with humans or with God. But as we talked about last week, you and I are not saved. We are not accepted by God as children and saints based on our ability to meet the minimum entrance requirements. Very plainly, you and I cannot meet the entrance requirements. We are the people who we despise. We are the people who lie and cheat and steal and gossip and improve the truth and exaggerate our successes and justify our failures. We are the people who hurt and injure and manipulate and slander and resent and lust and covet. We are those people. Me, I am that person. And so if there were a measuring stick outside of the gates of heaven, it wouldn't be shaped like a crocodile. It wouldn't be shaped uh, like uh, Tinkerbell. It would be shaped like Jesus, like a full, complete, whole, faithful, righteous one. He is the measuring stick uh, by which human beings are counted. And he is what we call perfect. But that just means he is what all human beings were meant to be, what we should be. And if I were to put my back against his outline, my faults would glare through like bruises and varicose veins. And you too. None of us can fill that outline, the outline of Jesus. None can meet those minimum entrance requirements of righteousness because the standard is perfection, not good enough. And friends, that's really, 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 really good news. Really good news. But many of you are thinking, we covered that last week. We're covered by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone last week. I know I cannot by myself meet God's requirements. I cannot match the Jesus-shaped measuring stick outside of God's kingdom. I know that I get into God's kingdom not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. That I'm accepted not because of my actions, but because of Jesus' actions. I know that I can enter God's kingdom because Jesus died for me. I know that when I come to that Jesus-shaped cutout in front of heaven's gates, It's not for me to put my back again and measure against. It's for me to hit my knees and praise God that Jesus has already paid it for me. It's not a measuring stick for my failure. It's a billboard for God's grace. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, I know, I've already accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. Stop trying to convince me to do that. I'm already saved. I made a decision to trust Him. And then I prayed that ABC prayer that you pray every week. And I'm saved. I'm good. I'm covered. I'm in. The problem is we continue to think wrongly about salvation even after moving from a workspace religious system that has us standing against a Jesus cutout trying to prove we're good enough into a faith-based system of righteousness. Even after I stop showing off my resume to God, far too many American Christians, and dare I say most American Christians, continue to think of being saved in terms of the minimum entrance requirements. The conversation goes something like this. What must I do to be saved? And you say, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And they say, okay, how do I do that? And you say, well, you say a simple prayer. It's as easy as ABC. Sound familiar? We do this every week, right? And then you check off all the boxes and you say the ABC prayer and it's like magic. Something happens in heaven and I'm, and I'm saved and, and that's it. Now what? Live your life and when you die, you go to heaven. That's what it means to be saved is that when you die, you go to heaven. That's not what it means to be saved. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is not a one-to-one correlation with when you die, you go to heaven. Any 
in evangelical Christianity, we've tended towards something that is dangerously towards that idea, dangerously towards a pray a magic prayer and you will go to heaven when you die. It actually looks a lot more like an indulgence. It actually looks a lot more like the magic rituals of medieval uh, Roman Catholicism than it does evangelical Christianity as portrayed in the gospel. The problem is that's not how the Bible talks about eternal life. That's not how the Bible talks about heaven. That's not how the Bible talks about dying. Instead, when the Bible talks about this, when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about God. In the Old Testament, the words heavens either refers to the sky and what's above the sky, or it refers to the place where God is. Heaven is where God is. You can see this in uh, Psalm 121, I think. 120, no, 123. Psalm 123, uh, the very first verse, it says... Uh, this will just be a, a sample verse. You can uh, guess it. I lift my eyes up to you who sit enthroned in heaven. That phrase, in heaven, is only applied to God in the Old Testament. In heaven is where God is. That's what the phrase heaven means. It means the place where God is. And there's only a few others who are mentioned in the Bible as in heaven. Before we get to the book of Revelation, we talk about Elijah is lifted up into heaven, and then we talk about Jesus ascends to heaven. They're there. In the Old Testament, the, the rest of the people, don't, the dead aren't in heaven. The dead have um, spent time somewhere else. And so, what is this? what are we supposed to make of all of this? What is eternal life? Well, heaven is where God is. And Jesus and Elijah are in heaven because that is where they are with God. They have with Godness. And so instead of thinking of heaven as a place, instead of thinking of heaven as the fulfillment of all of our grandest desires, we are supposed to think of heaven and God as inseparable. You cannot think of heaven without thinking of Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. And if you get there and he's not there, you're in the wrong place. I don't care how many golf courses or fishing boats or Creme brulees they have. I don't even like creme brulee. That's extra. Ah. And so what we see is that it's with Godness. Look at John 14 and John 17, right? This is where Jesus talks about where he is going, what he's going to do. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus isn't trying to give us an outline, a roadmap, an architectural design of heaven. The chief thing he tells us about the place that he's going is that he's going there. And why is he coming back to get us? So that we can be with him. That we can be with him. Eternal life is with Jesusness. If like you could give you cram that together, put some hyphens in it, make it a word. With Jesusness. Eternal life is about being in relationship with Jesus. It is about being with Jesus, knowing Jesus, in Jesus. The ancients called this union with Christ. And Jesus himself praised this both for himself and for you and me. Look again at John 17. Look at John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus is getting ready to die. And he knows, he's asking when I die. He says, 
you granted Jesus, you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given to him. Now, this is eternal life. Anytime you see something like that, there's, now this is eternal life. Jesus is going to define eternal life for you and for me. Now, eternal life is going to heaven and getting to eat whatever you want to with never gaining weight. Now, this is eternal life, that you may see everyone you love after you die. Now, this is eternal life, peace on earth and no more war. Now, this is eternal life. You get to sleep in a bed of 600 cats. I don't know, whatever you've imagined in your head is heaven. It doesn't say any of that. What does it say? This is eternal life, colon, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life. This is what Jesus says eternal life is, that you may know God, the only true God, and that you may know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The reason those two have to go together is because Jesus Christ reveals God. Jesus Christ is the only one who makes the Father known. If you reject Jesus, there is no other God. There's no third option. If you don't like Jesus, you will not like his daddy. And so this is eternal life. What's great news about this is that heaven is not something that just happens when we die. Heaven is not something that we uh, have to, eternal life is not something we have to wait till our last breath to enjoy, but we can experience it now. Eternal life starts with putting my trust and my faith in Jesus. Eternal life is restored communion with God so that no matter what I'm going through, I'm not walking alone when I walk through the valley of the shadow of the, the valley of the shadow of death. You know who's with me? God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That is eternal life, walking through even the valley of the shadow of death with God. And heaven does exist. Heaven is the place where God exists. And where are the faithful who have died and departed into glory? Where are they? Uh, Paul tells us most clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm working fast, and we're going to have 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we see in verse 6, it says, We are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says here, and he says it in Philippians, that to depart from this life, to be away from my body, away from this mass of cells, dirt, and water, away from the breath in my lungs, away from that is to be where? At home with the Lord. It is to be with the Lord. And yet, in this section, starting in verses 1 through 5, that is not the goal. That's just where I will be. The the goal, the Bible does not talk so much about heaven as our final resting spot as it looks forward in hope to the day when God will resurrect all believers, when God will restore uh, earth to its rightful place. And we see this in in, uh, Revelation uh, 21 where John, the revelator, looks up and he sees the heavens opened and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down and he sees heaven and earth married and he sees all the dead have been resurrected and all those who are still alive have been transformed in an instant at the sound of the trumpet and they too have been given their resurrection bodies and they are just like Jesus. They have become what Jesus already is. You see, I thought so wrong about heaven for so long because I never remembered that like if I always thought about heaven as the place where spirits dwell. And if that's true, then Jesus is the only person with a body in heaven. 
You know what I mean? Like, you, you get there, and Jesus has a body, because he was bodily raised from the dead, and his body ascended into heaven. So we're not going to spend all of eternity with me being a ghost and Jesus being a body. Because it says, as he is, so also shall his brothers be. So also shall his sisters be. And so our great hope, the great hope of the Bible, the great hope of Christianity is not just for heaven. It is for the resurrection, the general resurrection, which will happen when Christ returns, when all things are made new, when the new Jerusalem comes down, when the bride comes to the the wedding feast, and when you and I are made um, not just perfect, but we're given back, resurrected, beautiful, uh, spiritual bodies that are bodily, that can be hugged, and touched, and that can eat, that can dance, that can walk through doors, that can, I don't know what else they can do. I've never seen one before. And so we've got to recover this idea uh, that to die is to be with Christ, and yet our hope is not just um, for that, our hope is for, for that and so much more, and we have to recover the idea that eternal life starts right now. Eternal life is right now a relationship with God, being able to talk with God being able to to do life with God. And I think the clearest place, and I'll finish with this illustration to make this make sense. I'll give you two. One, and it's an an extension of that same one. I think if we think of eternal, if we think the idea of being a Christian is to get to heaven, it's it's just as pig-headed as thinking of the point of marriage as life insurance payouts. Like, sure, like, I get life insurance payouts because I'm married, like, if Claire were to die or if I were to die. But, like, is that the point? Like, is that the substance of marriage? Is is marriage one-to-one connected to life insurance? No. One is subsumed into the other. Heaven is subsumed into union with Christ. I get heaven because I'm united to Christ. I get heaven because I will be with Christ. And where is Christ? He's in heaven at the the right hand of the Father. And I think we see this very beautifully in what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. I'll just tell you the story. You don't have to read it. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see um, after Adam has sinned, he hears God walking in the garden. And God says, Adam, where are you? You see, you and I were meant to hear God's voice as clearly as you and I hear my spouse's voice or my dad's voice or the 5 o'clock news. Yet did anybody in here hear God that clearly? No, not yet. And yet eternal life is hearing God at all, hearing God's voice, knowing that he's directing me, knowing me that he's talking to me, knowing that he's comforting me. And what will eternal life look like in the future? 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Right now we see in part, as through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. We will hear. We will hear clearly. Eternal life, friends, being saved is about a relationship with Jesus. And that extends not just to minimum entrance requirements of religion, not just to magic prayers of incantations and new age spirituality. That extends to an actual relationship with a personal God, a God who talks, a God who listens, a God who rescues, and a God who saves. That starts now, and that extends into eternity, and that ends in the new heavens and the new earth when you get your body back. That may be confusing. It should be. It's bigger than you. It's like trying to explain a cube to a square. It's going to be awesome. Let's pray. Jesus, for my friends, I'm asking you to do something I can't do. I've used the words I got, the words I prepared, and even some I hadn't, and I'm asking you to fix their eyes on you. 
Would you reveal yourself to them? May they know what it is to know you uh, as a person, to know you personally, to interact with you as a human, as a, as a person, as someone who can talk and relate to. May they know and trust you as the Savior who died on a cross, who has satisfied all entrance requirements, who has given them relationship with you, that the goal of those requirements, the goal of your death is not just heaven, but it is a relationship with God. Would we, be, would we give ourselves to know that, to enjoy that, to spend ourselves experiencing eternal life right now and forever with you in heaven and forever with you in the new heavens and the new earth when you return and you make all things right. If you're here and you feel God talking to you and, and, and working on your heart, you can commit to following him. There are no magic prayers. There's just talking to God. But if you don't know how to do that, then maybe these simple words will help you. It's as easy as ABC. You admit that you're a sinner, that you need Jesus to save you. You B, believe that Jesus died on a cross to save you from your sin, and he's forgiven you, and he's reconciled you to his Father. And so C, you commit to trusting him and following him for the rest of your life, come what may. And so you can do that with a simple prayer like this one. Jesus, life apart from you is death. And I've been living it my way, and it hurts but I believe you died to save me. And so I commit to following you. I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to know what it feels like to be led by God. I want to do your will instead of my will for the rest of my life. I am yours and you are mine. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.